It went to record. Thank you for that hymn. That, that hymn is a, a wonderful introduction to what we're going to look at tonight. And it's also real encouragement that other people are seeing Jesus in the way we see him. And so tonight we're looking at the subject of trusting God for restoration and revival. That's the long term. Trusting God for restoration and revival. You know, when we talk about restoration, we usually mean making something look as if it's new, you know, like furniture, you know, like coat of paint on the house, uh, like um, mending a fence so it looks better. Restoration is putting things back to the way they used to be. It's actually making something new out of the remains of something that's perhaps been damaged or spoiled. And it also applies to the broken people of God, those who, who feel inadequate, those who feel they've failed and, and can't find the way back. It's a demonstration of the principle that in eternal and spiritual matters, God always has the last word. He finishes the job. Restoration in Jesus is a further aspect of the grace of God in salvation. And restoration leads to revival. Revival is the work of grace in bringing back to life that which is dead or dying. If you were, were to look at the prophecy of Ezekiel, you'll find that famous paragraph where he talks about the dead bones and uh, in that uh, that testimony as it were in Ezekiel if you want to follow it chapter 37 we find that Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones was asked a question son of man can these bones live he was given the answer I will put my spirit in you, dead bones, and you will live. So it would seem that God restores in order to revive, as we're going to see. And that's what revival means. It means to live again. So what do I mean by restoration in Jesus? Well, let's turn back to Colossians, which is our base from which we're working this week. Colossians chapter 1, in verse 28, we see the aim in preaching <clears throat> Christ Jesus. It is to present everyone fully mature in Christ. That would suggest that the work of salvation is to make a new person out of the wreckage of the old and to restore the image of God in each one. And later on this week, we should be looking at this new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. But there is nothing new in this. Restoration has always been the prime activity of God with his people. The history of the Jewish people is a history of restoration. 
when their, their city had been taken, their temple had been destroyed, their houses had been broken down, the walls had gone, God restored them. When we turn to the New Testament and we hear the parables of Jesus and he talks about, for example, the prodigal son. And it's a story of restoration. I am no, worth, no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your, your servants. And the, the father says, son, you're my son. Come home. And this is the attitude of our God. He's constantly waiting, watching and looking for repenting people who come home. If we look at the, another prophet, Joel, here's a man of God who was in dismay over the effects of his people's sins. He sees a plague of locusts as a picture of the judgment of God. The swarm of locusts was followed by the great locusts. They in turn were followed by the young locusts. And finally, the rest of the locusts came and by this time, there were no crops left and the land was devastated. That's in chapters one to four of Joel's prophecy. But then God gives to Joel a gentle message of grace. And, you know, God's dealings with us are always gentle. He's not the God with a big stick. He's the God with a big heart. And so God gave to Joel this lovely, gentle message of grace. He says, return to me with all your heart. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. And then there's a promise of restoration. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. God's discipline is always redemptive. By his grace, he always seeks the lost. He always moves to mend the brokenhearted. The repentant sinner is never turned away. God's discipline and his kindness are both designed to bring us to repentance. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 10 tells us that God disciplines us for our good. Romans 2 verse 4 tells us that his kindness leads us towards repentance. This is a lovely picture. These pictures of grace in the Old and the New Testament, they can cause tears when we realize that despite all the things we are and do, God loves us. There's a heartbreaking story in the Old Testament of Hosea. And he had an unfaithful wife who left him and went to other men and became a prostitute. And the prophet says it's a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness towards God. And here's a picture of his disgust over sin. Having discovered her faithlessness towards him, having been deserted by her, he puts a, together a plan for her restoration. 
And chapter two of Hosea, verses 14 to 23, has the plan. Therefore, he says, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert. I will speak tenderly to her. First the desert, then the tenderness. And is this not always the way of our God? When I lose touch with him through sin, falling to temptation, being angry, or any other of the many sins that beset us, when that happens to me, I find that God is waiting patiently. He permits our lives to become dry and fruitless. Then he comes to us, not in judgment, but in tender grace. And the message to the prostitute wife of the prophet says this, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. A new beginning is assured. Despite her sin, she still has a hope and a future. And this is an echo of the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. With the Lord, there is always a future. He will have the last word. And here is the plan for the future. Talking of this, this one who was not loved because of her deceit, which is a picture of Israel. It says this, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. A new life is promised. You will be planted again. That word again is a key to revival. Build again, plant again, live again. In these three separate incidents, we see God acting to restore. He was restoring a destroyed city and temple, a devastated land, a damaged relationship. And in each case, the motive was grace and the aim was revival. Now, I find these elements of God's restoration and revival in the New Testament also. For example, St. Peter who denied Jesus. First, he was in despair. He went out and wept. Then he was in dismay when he heard that Jesus was alive again and guilt filled his mind. And then in disgust, he turned back to his old ways and went fishing. And there, Jesus found him, met him with grace and restored him to faith and fellowship. That's been my experience of revival. Since my teenage years, how I praise God for his grace. Now, back to Colossians, and we shall see how this principle of restoration and revival is indeed a further evidence of the work of grace in the hearts of God's people. Chapter 1 and verses 9 to 14, we have Paul's prayer for the believers at Colossae. Our prayers often do display our deepest longings. Here, Paul shows a pastor's heart for the church. This is a prayer for revival in God's people. If we turn to 
verses in Colossians, and we read verses one, 9 to 14. This is what we read. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that was Paul speaking to a church and telling them what a, a great God they'd come to, to learn, to serve. What a great experience was available to them when they bowed the knee to Jesus, to the Son of God. He prays that God will fill them with knowledge of his will. No longer minds filled with enmity towards God. Now he wants those same minds to be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is a wisdom and it's an understanding that he will give, not something we ourselves must search out. Romans 12, 2 urges us not to conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then we'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. We are to be transformed. We are not called to transform ourselves by hard work and self-effort. This renewal, this transformation, this revival is the work of God in us. As we learn to confess our true state of mind, as we learn how to repent quickly, every time the old thoughts enter our minds and we need to be broken before God over our sin. And so he puts a new mind and a new heart in us. His prayer for transformation of their minds by Paul was in order that they might live worthy lives. We still sing the old hymns, I'm so pleased, because many of them are gospel hymns. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like thee his praise should sing. This is our God. This is the one who calls to us when we are far away. The one who is waiting to see us returning. This is a God whose work is to work in us that we might be revived. Paul prays that as a result of this work of God in them, they will live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way. No longer an excluded alien but a child in the family of God, living to please him. A revived relationship is a restored relationship. But how do we, helpless sinners, demonstrate life worthy of the Lord? 
firstly by bearing fruit in every good work. No longer indulging in evil behavior, but doing those things which glorify him. Fruit just grows, you know. Doesn't grow itself, it's a product of the life flowing into it from its roots. When our roots are in ourself, the fruit is self-based. When the roots are in Christ, the fruit is Christ-based. And a revived life brings out a renewed discipleship. We demonstrate this life by growing in the knowledge of God. This is referred to a growing relationship, not of engaging in a vast amount of academic effort. This is similar to the relationship that grows between two people in a marriage. You don't study each other. You don't read a book about each other. You just grow together. Eventually, you even think alike. Sometimes you don't even need to speak in order to communicate. And growing in the knowledge of God is far more to do with the heart than with the head. Finally, Paul concludes by praying that they would be strengthened with all power. This is the power to live a new life. No longer dying in sin, but dying to sin and living in the power of a risen life. God's power. A revived life has a, has a, revived life has a restored strength. So where's this power to be found? Now, it's strange that you were talking about a mobile phone earlier because I've written down a visual aid of mobile, mobile phone and house phone. The difference is that the mobile needs re re recharging, whereas the house phone remains connected to the source of power. And you know, if we're trying to live in our own strength, we're gonna run out of power. And then we shall need to repent. We shall need to come to God to explain to him that we are ashamed, that we're trying to do in our own strength what can only be done in his strength. The power to live a new life is the result of our connection to Jesus. So, in this prayer in Colossians, we have a total provision for our life in Christ. And none of these prayers depend on human effort for their answers. The answers are the result of God's grace working in the life of believers. By this grace, this undeserved favor of God towards rebels and sinners who repent, believers are qualified to share in the inheritance of God's people in the kingdom of light. By grace, they have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the son he loves, our Jesus. And this is the kingdom in which we are called to live. This then is the prayer of Paul for us today, not just for the Colossians 2000 years ago, but for us today. And in it, we see that the way of restoration and revival is from Jesus. So may the Lord bless us as we seek to walk in his way, as we follow the guidance of the scriptures, 
as we respond to the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts, challenging us and pointing us to the cross. And this is revival. Well, thank you all. Bless you. Yeah. Hi, you can hear me okay? Yes, you yes. can. Okay, good. Um, some of you have heard some of this before, not so long ago, but um, I've been asked to give a, a testimony by Sheila Bird. So there we go. I became a Christian at uh, seven years old at a Scripture Union holiday club, and I've been going to the holiday conferences um, starting at Clevedon through Southwold and into, into um, Quinter. And I, I was taught well by Jim and Vilma Monk. And I went to the, obviously, onto the youth groups. And then at Quinter went onto the staff. Now through this, I must say, there was, I realized there was something special and something different about the, the um, Christians, the speakers. I didn't obviously going to the youth groups. I didn't really hear the main um, speakers in the main hall that often. But I realised there was something very different, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Anyway, as time went went on, I I was um, and I got into adulthood. I I found even though I was a born again evil evangelical Bible believing Christian, I felt an emptiness. I felt I didn't have the life that I could see in some other people. I. I had no real joy. I had no real peace. I was not that happy. Now, I'd um, at some point about, I think it was about 2005, 2006, I started, I was, as I was going back, going into my father's study, I started feeling that this a little book was calling to me. It was I don't know how many books my dad had, over a thousand, I don't really know in this period. But one little book was felt, it was like one little book was calling to me. Of course, it wasn't the book that was calling to me, but the Holy Spirit, I see in, now, I see the Holy Spirit was prompting me to pick up this little book and start reading it. And it was Calvary Road. And as I, as I read it, I really started to understand the message and what people were talking about at the holiday conferences. However, as I tried to apply it to my life, I kind of miss it. I kind of didn't quite get it. And as Dave was just saying, I tried to, as it were, transform myself. So I found I was striving, striving to be to, for joy, striving to be humble, striving even in repentance, striving to be right with God and I, I wasn't joyful and I still did not have the peace. I still was missing missing it somehow. Now as I'd not really been to the conferences due to the fact that of education when going to live abroad. I hadn't been for the conferences for some years. And then in, um, we moved to Congleton and I was going to see we were going to see Kevin and Anne Marie Jones up in uh, in Banks and on the, on the way, we stopped off at Southport and we saw Jean Neal. I think you all remember Jean Neal. And um, and I just said, oh, hello, how are you, kind of thing. And 
and she said hello and then the very next thing she said was are you going to Pantidor in the summer sorry like right <laughs> and um, it was such a surprise I just said yes I knew what she said was from the Lord because it was just it was such a surprise and it was it was in December of 2007 it wasn't anywhere near coming to conference time and I just knew it was what the Lord was calling me to. So I started going to the um, conferences again and I saw how people were, how, how it, it applied, how they were applying the message to their life or how it was being applied to their life, how they walked the way of Calvary, how they were repenting and what, and it was teaching about brokenness, but it took me ages to really get into it or to understand it or to apply, have it applied to my life or to see it needed applying to my life. I'm not really sure where the breakthrough first came, but one episode stands out. Um, there was somebody coming, coming into the shop where I was volunteering. Who I, he was a manager of another shop, actually. And I must say, I disliked him immensely. I really, he really irritated me. He really wound me up. I did not like him. And I knew I needed to repent of it. And I would be there and I would be repenting of my reactions towards him. And then he would go. And then maybe a couple of months later, I'd see him again. I, he'd wind me up and I would be irritated. And I would be repenting of my reactions. And then I went home one day and I was praying about it. And as I was praying, I saw in my mind's eye the Lord Jesus Christ going to Calvary. See, and he was telling me that he had died for me and he had died for him. Where, that not that he knows the Lord, but I saw it and I was completely broken in tears, weeping before the Lord as I I saw the Lord going to Calvary for me because of this sin and how my attitude. And I saw that that was, well, I suppose it's what you call brokenness. And what I saw I needed to do was to repent about my whole attitude towards the guy, not just merely of my reactions, but my whole attitude towards him. And I was deeply broken about this. And then I repented also then of my, my reactions couple of months later I saw him again and it, I was perfectly fine with him I spoke normally to him ordinary like I had no 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 not, not you know enmity towards him at all I was completely changed in my attitude towards him but it's the Lord's work in me and I had to see it now since then he showed me so uh, so much um how I am towards this person or that person, that unlove, that uh, um, enmity, that, that hatred in some cases, and that's even towards other Christians in some cases. And um, there's no, and he's had to show me time and again that I've needed to be broken in my attitude to see that Christ died for them too, that he went to Calvary for them, and he went to Calvary for me because of that sin of hatred towards them and I've had to be broken and I've had to repent about it deeply. But in other ways, he's shown me, I, 
I could never have stood, uh, have sat here and, and given any testimony or, or stood on the, on the stage at Pantidor and spoken because I was so reserved until maybe six, seven years ago, I just couldn't do it. And I had to repent of my reserve. And I saw that my reserve was pride of heart. It was nothing more than pride of heart and fear of what you would say about me or speak about me. And that was what it was. And I had to repent about that. And he set me free of it. And that's why I can now give a testament that I can speak before you, that I can speak at Pantidor. It's not, it's not that I'm outgoing at all, it's the Lord's working in me. And, I've, and each time I have to get myself really right with the Lord before I can ever say anything at all. And he's shown me in other, other ways, such hardness of heart I have, one, or such self-glory, nothing to be glorious about in self, and all this self-life when he shows me that I've had to come to the cross and I've deal, dealt with one way or another. And when it rears its ugly head again, I know where to take it. And I know about the, the cleansing and the blood. I go to that fountain of blood um, to have it cleansed. And he showed me too, because sometimes there's, there's things which have come up in the past, which but I've remembered from the past sins that I've, I know I've repented of, I know the Lord's dealt with me, but I feel guilt in my heart still. It, 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 I'm reminded of it, and there's guilt there. And I know that I can take that guilt and that shame and have it cleansed in the blood, and it's taken right away, and I have no, no guilt or shame left. I know where to take it. Well, and then I'm restored, and my life has come anew in these in these years and real life, real joy, real peace in my heart. Well, I'm still, I'm still learning and I'm, uh, the Lord is still showing me daily things which need dealing with. And I tell you, when I, I'm not getting right with the Lord, if I say, oh, well, you know, it wasn't so bad and I go on and I just feel after a while, I, I feel an emptiness and I, have, I eventually have to come back to the Lord and have it dealt with and get right with the Lord. And then new uh, life is restored again. Well, thank you for listening. <laughs> thank you. God bless you. <clears throat> thank you so much. That's, that's such a blessing to hear real testimony. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.